Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor in chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the Dockwire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Gina Kim, Chief Product Officer of Cohere Health, a utilization management technology company. She's here today to talk about prior authorizations and their disproportionate impact on underserved and minority communities. Thanks for speaking with me today, Ms. Kim. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Let's get started. So can you tell us about your background and your work at Cohere Health? I am a, a, a product person, which means I'm someone who loves to solve problems. And I, the you know problems that I'm really excited about solving are challenges that impact everybody in, in healthcare. Um, you know, I think when I was growing up in Minnesota, my mom uh, was a nurse and I was very interested in, you know, ways that um, my dad was also in an accident when I was seven. So even firsthand as a child was kind of seeing the healthcare system and and the impact that it has on on people and the, you know, the, um, your families and, uh, you know, your your life, your livelihoods. So that was always a personal mission for me in terms of, um, you know, what I wanted to do. And I was really excited about um, technology. I started life as a mechanical engineer um, and then got into management consulting. But the last, um, you know, over a decade have been really in uh, this the space of kind of healthcare, um, healthcare technology. And uh, the, the exciting thing about healthcare technology is that, you know, healthcare has so many things which are great about it. You know, you have these um, professionals who are incredibly dedicated to serving communities and, you know, people go into it because they really have, um, you know, a vocation in terms of serving people. And at the same time, you have incredible, you know, techno technological and, um, you know, uh, medical advances that make it possible for people to, to have longer lives, to be, you know, enjoying, um, enjoying time and enjoying health. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of issues. And so, uh, you know, it was really um, exciting for me to be able to find the space around healthcare technology where technology can actually impact um, the way healthcare um, is delivered in this in this country, um, you know, for, for all of us. Um, and so currently I'm at Cohere Health. And um, as you said, we're a, we're a company that's focused on really transforming utilization management. And I joined this because I saw so much pain in this space of prior authorization and the potential of um, data and technology to, to solve the problems in this space. And, you know, so our company is, um, I think we're a little shade under 500 people and it's a great team. We have clinicians, we've got product, we've got design, data science, machine learning. It's a really, you know, great collection of um, of people who are who are trying to solve you know some of the really uh, challenging process um, parts of, of the the system it's kind of unsexy um, parts of the the process that um, often are invisible to to a lot of the patients um, you know but very visible to providers and certainly um, you know to to our clients who are the health plans so can you walk us through the billing process from the payee's perspective? specifically the parts the doctor and patient don't see? 
Um, so how how healthcare is billed and paid for is a very complicated process. Um, and I think it's complicated because the people who pay for care aren't necessarily the people who are actually using it. And so, um, you know, this is why we have insurance because, um, you know, paying for the expertise of doctors and, you know, all of the equipment and the everything that goes into, you know, some some treatment and some procedures is incredibly expensive. And so, you know, individuals like we can't we can't afford that. And so you have to get insurance because of insurance, then it's complicated. Right. So. So the way it works is, um, so you get insurance, it's usually, you know, either it's um, through your work, um, commercial insurance, or it's through the government, so Medicare, Medicaid. And then um, when you go into the office um, to get a procedure, the first thing they will do is check to see how they, you know, how, how you will be paid. So that's, they do an eligibility check to make sure that you're covered. Um, and then after that, for certain procedures um, and certain, um, certain drugs, you will, the, the, plan, um, the health health plan will require a prior authorization. And so that's basically the provider saying, hey, we want to do this service, um, go check if we're going to get paid for it. And so that's, that's a process called prior authorization. And then if that authorization comes through, you'll get scheduled, you will go, um, you know, get the, uh, the, the procedure, and then the provider will file a claim. And based on your insurance, also, you may have to pay something, right? You may have to pay a copay or you may have to pay coinsurance. Um, but then the rest of that gets paid for by your insurance. And so they file a claim. And at that claims point, then there is something called reconciliation because they need to make sure that that claim is what was authorized in the beginning. Because, you know, things change during um, yeah. the course of treatment. You may have someone who hey, you thought you were going to get this one thing, but then they came in and it turns out they have to do these other things. So that's actually a whole process unto itself. Um, and so then after that, right, the claim is paid. And then sometimes um, the claim is not paid, right, if the uh, health plan has looked at the data and says, actually, not sure about this. And then there's another process called grievance and appeals, where people might appeal the claim and try to get that paid, um, which often that burden sits a lot on the patient. Um, and then there's other processes where the health plan is also trying to, you know, detect people who might be, you know, um, abusing the system. It, it doesn't happen very, you know, frequently. Like we really believe many providers are trying to do the right thing, but obviously like they have processes in the background to make sure that, you know, that that's the case because you do have cases of fraud. So that's like the entire billing process. And it's so complicated because, um, you know, it, you have, you know, payers who have to, do all these um, pieces and you have providers who have to have staff to do all these pieces. And then on top of that, it's very based on the, the financial transaction, right? When you think about it, the, the idea that patient is lost. And so one of the things that I think is really broken about this is that you treat each individual service separately, right? And that's a consequence of us having this fee-for-service system where you know each service you are paid, you know, the provider is paid for. But when you think about it from a patient perspective or really the way doctors think, you're on a journey, right? Like you might get a diagnosis and then you're gonna get, you know, the you, you might get labs, you might get these pieces and then they'll decide, okay, what's gonna happen to you? And that that's a journey that builds and there's data that are being generated along the way. But this process, it takes one service at a time and every single time someone has to send over the information, someone has to review that information and it's um, highly manual. There's some automation that's very simple today, but we think there's a lot more that can be done. 
But you talked a little, you said something about the pain in the prior authorization process. But let me back up and ask a, a different question. So who's responsible for these decisions of chopping up? Because you're right, care is a continuum. There are a bunch of things that happen in the process between making the appointment and you know, hopefully getting better or getting treatment, right? So who's responsible? Um, and if you don't have the answer to that, that's, that's fine. But I'm just curious, are these clinicians on the, um, the insurer side making these decisions? Or like, where's the, the breakdown that someone decided that this should all be chopped up into little bits? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the short answer, I don't think anyone really decided it, right? Like, I think that's the issue with like a lot of these systems problems is that, um, you know, with the technology available to them, with the structure that you had, a lot of these processes, they're, they're coming out of billing, right? It's like, it's like you're going to a restaurant and instead of someone giving you the menu and saying, hey, like, who, like, what are all the things you like to eat? And here's this beautiful, you know, menu that we're going to put out for you. All you have is the bill, right? And and at the end of the day, it's like the bill that is driving the thing. And so like, I think the reason is because it, you know, healthcare started out with providers making a clinical decision and the financials being, you know, like paid by somebody else. And like, that's the fundamental okay. you know, issue in healthcare. And so that everything stems from that because then you have billing that that has to happen this way. And it, I think it really comes from the fact that it's fee-for-service and, right, there's a lot of effort to try to um, switch, you know, our, our, our entire healthcare philosophy system alignment towards value-based care, which would be exactly what you're saying is the more longitudinal piece. But I don't think anyone sat in a room and said, oh, let's make this really hard for people. Let's chop up, you know, what should be a patient journey. But we are trying to, you know, take the pieces of a system that has come up and evolved without, you know, a lot of um, guardrails and a lot of design and trying to like figure out how to make it closer to what I think we want the ideal to be. And so what types of challenges do smaller under-resourced medical systems face regarding the prior authorization process or the billing process? Yeah. So um, I think first let's talk about why they're under-resourced in the first place, right? So I think when you have um, providers and hospitals that are serving, under, you know, rural, underserved, under, under, um, under disadvantaged um, populations, you know, they are generally taking um, Medicaid and Medicaid, it, it reimburses lower than Medicare, it reimburses lower than commercial populations. So already they don't have as much to work with, right, in terms of um, the resources that they have. Right. And then on top of that, then the work that they have isn't the same because they're working with patients who are more complex. You have people who they may be suffering from homelessness. They may um, have comorbidities, right? There's like higher prevalence of, um, you know, of, uh, of medical uh, issues um, in this population. You also may have, you know, other social and structure, structural drivers of health, um, access to transportation, education, financial, medical literacy, right? Like these are complex um, patients that they're that they're dealing with. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, you layer in like what people are going through now with COVID. Um, I was just reading this survey um, of community health centers, which are the health centers um, that serve, you know, disadvantaged communities and especially the federal ones, um, you know, they are able to take Medicaid. And they they actually there was a survey that said that almost seventy percent of them reported that they're they lost twenty five percent of their staff in the last six months. Oh wow! Right? And 
And why? Because of wages, right? They they have nurses that they have left because they're going to better funded systems. And then they have, um, you know, administrative staff that, I mean, it was like behavioral staff, like everybody, you know, across the board, they're losing these people. So you, you're just, you're working with less and you have to, and you're dealing with a population, which unfortunately just, you know, thanks to the disparities in our system um, are, require more right and so um i think it's like one of the big issues of our time is like how do we how do we solve this disparity and so then when you talk about then okay with this under-resourced medical system and then you layer in this process that is extremely complex right you have every insurer has a different way that they do prior auth they may have different lists of procedures they may have different requirements, right? They may have, everyone's basing their policies on evidence, but one might be using one policy, one might be using another. Medic, Medicaid and Medicare, actually that policy is standard through um, through uh, through CMS, but it's still very complex for the, you know, for the the office staff and the, you know, um, the the people at, at, at these centers to manage. And so I just think it's like a, you know, on top of everything they're dealing with, you have to add in this really tough process like that. That is, I think, um, kind of a bitter pill for for anybody to swallow. And there's also closures in a lot of like there's there are health systems that are just closing because they just don't have the money to keep their doors open anymore, and then it's creating medical deserts in some. Yeah, absolutely, That's rural. Yeah, more of a strain, I imagine. That's exactly right. And when you think about those medical deserts, right, like. Um, there are some uh, articles around infant and maternal care that, you know, when you start out without having the right care at the beginning of life, that can have, you know, repercussions throughout your life. And so, so you know, I, I really think there's a, a challenge and, you know, obviously, this is a, a major um, focus for the um, current administration on, you know, how how do you reduce these disparities? And I know there's been some funding programs to try to help, you know, these um uh, you know, these under-resourced medical centers in in this time of COVID and all of this, but I think it's a structural issue, right? That just, they are paid less, they have to do more, and, you know, you're, you're going to run into these problems. And so how, what does this mean for the patient, for patient care? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a driver of disparities in health, and, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, right? So if you have... Um, processes which are contributing to care delays. So the American Medical Association um, does a survey every year of clinicians in terms of the impact that prior auth, prior auth has on them. And they they cite that, you know, I think it's something like 90% of providers have care delays um, because of this process, right? Because most of those systems, um, you know, you might be waiting three days, you might up to 14 days to get a response back. And there are instances of health plans having a backlog of thousands of prior offs that they need to work, right? And so that that contributes to um, disparities in care. Um, you also have, you know, abandonment of treatment issues because if you have, um, and this was another thing the AMA cited, um, something like over 80% cited that, uh, you know, someone has abandoned treatment because of a delay, um, a care delay. And I think that actually impacts this population even more, right? Because if you are working a job where you have a shift or uh, you do you don't have control over your schedule, you can you know you're penalized because you're missing um, you know an hourly job. Um, you can't get the childcare. You can't get you had the transportation lined up. You can't get the transportation now because things have changed, right? Like it actually 
all these little micro things actually end up impacting whether that patient is going to get the care that they need. Um, and so that that's a real, um, you know, that's a real challenge that has an impact on, 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 on real patients. You know, what's interesting. I was just talking about that last week because I've been having an issue where um, I had to, well, I had a, a, an MRI scheduled and then it got um, canceled because the machine broke. And then, so they had to send me to another center. And then I had to, and the person that I was supposed to speak to, she went on vacation. And right. when the lead person goes on vacation, the other people just kind of sit back. And so I'm calling daily, every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. And it took me almost two weeks to get in touch with that person and get a new appointment. And I'm not a shift worker. Like right, I'm right. The desk and I'm in front of a computer and I have my phone and I have the freedom to make these calls daily and to annoy them daily. <laughs> and, and I'm just thinking like, I see now how people fall off the fall out of the system and just fall out of care because who has the time and the patience to do this? Like if I'm a cashier, really? I can't be at the cash register on my phone calling over and over again. If I, if I work at a gas station, I can't do that. If I work at a, a, at a, you know, a warehouse, I don't have the time. I can't step aside and do that. I'll lose my job if I'm on my phone. It Exactly. That's exactly it. And and I think that's, again, like nobody designed the system, you know, like, why is it that the patient has to be the one who follows up, right? Like, like, yeah. why are we not designing a system where this is, you know, real time, you can get a decision, like right where, you know, the, the, the doctor is, so you can make your decisions when you're in the, you know, in the visit itself, right? So I think like from a coming from kind of a design and a product background, it's things like this that drive me crazy, right? Like that nobody's thinking about the human component of this and the the impact that it really has on someone's life. And then let's say you do miss that MRI, what happens, right? You don't get diagnosed in time. And then you, you may have disease progression that you don't know is even occurring because you didn't get that information. Exactly. And it's just um, like a principle in design is you have to make it easy for people. I mean, even things we want to do, like people don't do like, I should, you know, I should want to exercise. I should want to do all these things, mm -hmm. but you know, human nature is you have to make it easy and health healthcare, it drives, you know, it drives me crazy. You can get things one click on Amazon and you can't do it for healthcare and yet healthcare. And I, I understand all the complexities behind. I know why we can't do it exactly like that, but the fact that, you know, our most vital thing, right? Like I would say healthcare and education are the two most important things in terms of, at least I'm a mama too, right? Raising my family and it can't be easy. It, it, like, where are we putting our resources as a country? Like, why aren't we solving like these bigger problems? But also, why can't we know? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you said you understand why not, but why not? Why, why, why can't we? Yeah. So why not? I, this is such a hard problem and I have a perspective and I'm sure other people do. I, I think it's a lot of the fragmentation. There are so many players and so many over, right? So we have, um, you know, probably 400 payers in this um, in in the country, and you have okay. you know thousands of providers, and each of their each of them has a practice that they set up, right? And so you want to scale something, you you know you want to have impact that like scales across. Even if you get one of the national pairs, you know um, you're still looking at uh, you know you're looking at millions. You're not looking at like our country is 330 million people. Like you want something that's going to reach across everybody and kind of have that kind of impact. And so I think it's a very complex space. You have government, you have all these, you know, fragmented 
um, you know, payers, you have employers in there because, you know, actually um, employers pay for care through the payers. Then you have the patients, then you have the providers. And then when you actually look at the medical systems that's as well, that's very complex. You have um, health system, academic medical centers, you've got community health, you've got, right? Like it's extremely fragmented. So I, I think that's the reason, right? Like to get anyone on board with anything, and to make it easier for people, you have to get lots of people to the table and make it happen. But that's also where I think there's a lot of opportunity for technology companies. And at least in our um, our view, this is one of the reasons we're working with health plans. We believe health plans can make a difference here because they control the processes, right? And if they can do this in a way that is more collaborative, you know, keeps the provider and the patient in mind, um, and then uses data to the best of our abilities, right? Like we can start something and then the hope is you start it and then you grow it, right? And more and more people kind of join the movement and that's how you can get to scale. So I still believe it's possible. I think it's very hard, but that that's maybe that's a, a simplistic uh, reason. Well, tell us about your platform and how it addresses these issues. Yeah. Um, so our platform, uh, the, the goal, we have technology that essentially makes it much easier for everybody, you know, the the provider, um, as well as the health plan, um, you know, to uh, to get in the information that you need um, to make the decision, the, the determination of medical necessity, um, and then also um, make better decisions that lead to better outcomes. And so, you know, one thing is just, we need to make this process easier for everyone. There's an administrative burden here on the provider. As we talked about, the patient also is sitting here out in the dark, confused about what's happening. Um, and then we have the um, the health plan, which also has tons and tons of you know resources. They're investing in running these processes, and so if you can streamline and simplify that, um, that will help everybody. And so we work on you know intake of the data, so whether it's EMR, portal, fax, phone, um, then the decisioning itself, and we're use, trying to use all the data that we have that's available, you know, from um, claims, from the clinical notes. Um, we have ML models we built to read those so that, you know, we're trying to reduce the amount that people actually need to enter and, you know, do themselves. And then we apply, you know, clinical intelligence. And so that's um, what we call kind of, you know, we're trying to do a couple of things. Like one is if someone's submitting something that doesn't look like it's going to be approved, let's get them back, you know, a decision um, and, or let's, let's get them back a recommendation, right? And that recommendation can say, hey, you know, we don't think this is actually going to be approved. Um, but here are some things that will, right? Maybe you're sending, maybe that person hasn't had conservative therapy before you're sending them to a surgery. Well, why not kind of let them know that they need to do that, right? And so give them that information up front so it's not a black box for them. Um, and so, you know, I think that that kind of view of how do we help the provider? Like, how do we get to the right care, um, you know, being being planned um, and then submitted and approved the first time so that you're not doing all the stuff on the back end that, um, you know, takes a long time. And then the answer coming back to the patient is delayed. Like we want to make this like as real time as possible. Well, how do you know uh, whether something is, how does, how does your, your data aggregation, how do you know something is going to be approved or not? And is that information that's then, um, given to the provider who then relays that to the patient or is that a clinical decision where they say oh this is not going to be approved okay let me think about uh, how else i can approach this how does that part work 
Yeah, so the decisions are based on evidence-based policies. And so that's that's kind of the current state of the universe, right? You have, um, you have people in a room who are looking at the available clinical trial evidence and, you know, looking at efficacy studies and things like that. And so from that, um, health plans, but also CMS and others, they will put together policies. Um, and then there's also, you know, policy companies out there that that have um, have policies about that. There are some issues there in terms of, um, uh, you know, the um, underserved population. So, for example, um, I think people of color make up um, like over 40 percent of the country. But clinical trial representation is, you know, at, like I think in the single digits in some some studies. Right. And so sometimes the evidence base does not even include, you know, um, an understanding of the, the, these populations, but that's what the policies are being driven by. And then the other thing is um, states like California, they're saying, you know, in addition to kind of looking at these, or not even in addition, they're saying, you should not be applying a policy that a professional society. So for example, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons or the American College of um, Cardiology they also have guidelines that they believe are based on best practice that their physicians are actually practicing. And so, you know, those like California saying, you, you can't make something that contradicts what our best experts of the field are making. Now, the thing is all of these um, policies are publicly available, but it gets back to what you said earlier, who has time? Like who has time to go look through these policies and see what's gonna be approved? But that's often what, if your um, prior authorization is denied, what we leave patients where you get a yes and a no, you don't get a reason, you don't get, you know, or if you get a reason, that's kind of like you your reason, the code, and then you have to scan through the documents, to the explanation of benefits to see what, what that code means. And then it's like maybe five words and you're left to figure it out on your own. Like, figure what it does out. Mean? <laughs> exactly. What does any of it mean? And that, that's like, I think that's like such a fundamental thing. And, you know, for pay, cause you're, you are, it's like another language, right? And so you talk about financial literacy, there's also medical benefit literacy, which just, ah, it's so hard, right? Like even people who are in healthcare, like when I'm look, analyzing a bill I'm getting, I'm also trying to figure this out. And I've been in healthcare for, you know, over 20 years. And so I think it's just, it's hard for everybody. So, um, so, so I think in this case, um, like, you know, it is, it is complicated. And so when you have this, um, this prior auth that comes back, what we want to be able to do is say, in plain English, like in the moment, in the workflow, hey, this isn't, you know, this is li not likely to be approved, or if you did this, this would be likely to be approved. But let's say you're not able to do that. Here, here's kind of our recommendations, right, of what, what could be approved. So like, how do you get to yes, right, on the right care for that patient? Um, so that's kind of the policy level. But in addition to that, like our company, um, we're trying to completely rethink this, right? So policy is one thing, but as I said, policy is not perfect. And policy also, it can be very broad and it can be open to interpretation. And so what we're also trying to look at is when decisions are actually pended and go to manual review, a lot of those actually end up being approved. And when you think about it, that's crazy, right? Like um, at the end of the day, you put it through this manual process only for it to be approved. And at the very end of the day, maybe even if it was denied at prior authorization, it might get appealed and approved at the end of the day for the claim, right? And so you're putting all these providers through this process when just only a tiny percentage of these um, claims are ultimately not paid. And so we're also trying to understand that part of things to say, can we improve our models that if it looks like 
um, care is getting approved because there wasn't something in the note or there wasn't something in the policy, but it was relevant to that patient's care. How do you get that yes, you know, real time and, you know, build automation to actually help with that? I'm curious, what percentage of care requires prior authorization? Do you know that number? Um, so. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Off the top of my head, I don't know that, but it is probably you know, I, I mean, I'm guessing here, but like 70 or 80% of, of procedures, if you look at something like musculoskeletal, right? Pr um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, and then a lot of the, the surgeries all prior auth, right? A lot of the drugs prior auth, you know, et cetera. So it's probably a, a significant proportion. Wow. So this, this is a, a far reaching situation. Well, so in your article, you talked about something called ACO REACH, the mm -hmm. REACH model, which was created this year to bring the benefits of accountable care to Medicare beneficiaries in underserved communities. Can you explain ACO REACH and expand on these goals a little? Sure. So um, the accountable um, ACO stands for Accountable Care Organization, and this is an organization that is kind of a um, collaboration between a provider and and a payer, and so. What happens is that you know accountable care. It means that the provider is going to take on some of the um, the financial risk of serving a population. And the thought is that by kind of bringing you know the financial responsibility with the clinical responsibility, you can drive you know decisions towards higher value care. And so ACO Reach is a really exciting model, and it's um, I think it's the first model by CMS that is putting an emphasis on health equity. And so if you are an ACO and you are in this model um, with CMS, you actually have to put a plan together about how you're going to identify health disparities um, and then have a plan for like what actions you're going to take to address those disparities. Um, and then on top of that, there's going to be a health equity benchmark adjustment. So ACOs, what they get is, you know, kind of target spend, um, spending targets. And so, um, you know, those targets are going to be adjusted um, you know, uh, if they are able to serve, you know, socially, economically at-risk patients. And so if you don't serve a lot of at-risk patients, you'll have your benchmarks lowered. If you have your, you know, serve more at-risk patients, you're going to have them raised. And so um, the thought is that that's actually going to incentivize providers to treat more of this population that is underserved. Um, and so it's a really interesting, um, you know, interesting program. It's requiring them to collect data on demographics, social determinants of health, 
Um, and that's not something that currently I think exists in in the other kind of Medicare uh, programs. And this is a Medicare um, Medicare model. This sounds like this sounds like you need to hire a completely different person just to do this work, right? Because uh, this doesn't sound like something your typical billing coder would be able to do. So who would be the person to collect this data and, and um, distill this information for a yeah. You're absolutely right. I don't, it wouldn't be kind of the administrative staff that are currently working on this. Although I think there are ways to use processes like this to, co to try to collect more and, you know, bring together more of the census, SQOH data, et cetera. But um, typically, you know, ACOs are set up really differently than practices. They, they have to, they have to be set up differently because they have to have care coordination. They have to have, you know, this data collection intelligence, they have to set up a lot of these um, things. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, when, um, when a health system decides to apply, it's a big deal, right? Like they, they mean that they are making an investment towards that community and like they are going to put all of those things in place. But the idea is that, you know, they'll have more control over the, the finances and the targets and it should lead to better outcomes, right? That's the thesis here is that you can, you can have better outcomes for your population. And so I agree. It's one of the things that makes that transition to value-based care very hard because when you think about it, you know, even we we have a concept at Cohere called a care path where you're coming in for a surgery. Wouldn't it be great if you could get all your post-op care lined up, right? Like you're, yeah, really? you're doing at home, you're doing your, right? But that's not the way the jobs are allocated. And if you're running a practice, right, it's expensive to have all this, right? So they do they do the process that is required but, and so to, to change that to say, okay, let's actually take on more, right? We actually need to compensate practices for doing that coordination work. And Medi Medicare has some programs to do that. And there's coordination and care payments and things like that. But, but you know, I think there has to be like these types of models like ACO Reach are really exciting because they're hopefully going to drive, you know, that investment in these types of, um, these types of programs. So are we finding this on the community health level or is this the larger institutions adopting this? Um, ACOs would be at the the health system level, I think, right? You're going to need, but you, there should be community health as part of that. A lot of ACOs do have, you know, reach out programs to, um, to community health resources as well. But, it, you know, like it, your health is a whole person, whole community, you know, aspect, so... So how does your platform differ from other companies in this space? I, I think just first from kind of how we were um, founded and like our principles and our philosophy is different. Like even, you know, we, we think people say like, you know, are you a UM company? I actually say, no, we're, we're transforming UM, right? Like we, we believe like we need to make this about collaboration outcomes, right? Not about utilization management, like utilization management sounds like I'm going to control utilization, which is exactly like how people founded it. But again, like we want to put the person back in the center of things. Um, and then also I think, you know, we're starting tech first. So we are starting with data. We are starting with like, Hey, what, what do we have about patients and providers? And then how can we use that to make, um, you know, make better collaborative decisions with, um, you know, with, with providers and, and again, like a part of our philosophy is that most providers, the vast majority are trying to do the right thing and are, you know, really, um, you know, seeking to to do the right care. And so why why put a burden on them? So we're starting with that kind of as a philosophy. Um, but then I think, you know, our product is pretty different in terms of, you know, our, our platform is 
first we're able to, you know, we have the technology so we can help. Um, sometimes health plans have an in-house team that is, you know, performing prior auth, we can help them. Sometimes they outsource. We can also handle the outsourcing. So kind of the breadth of what we offer and that end-to-end -end platform is different. Um, and then, you know, again, our clinical approach is pretty different. So we think in terms of care paths and, you know, starting with that diagnosis, what are the things that, you know, you might need as a patient? And we have developed, you know, those um, guidelines in partnership with uh, these leading medical societies. And so, you know, thinking about how do you make this burden easier? Well, one way to make that burden easier is like not doing this transactionally, as we talked about earlier, but really thinking about legs of that journey and that episode, that kind of integrated care um, path that someone might go 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 down. Um, and we're also thinking about kind of, you know, ways that you're, um, you're influencing uh, that that provider. So this idea that you're giving information back, that you're trying to say, hey, like here are some alternatives, right? That that that's all based on um, analytics. Um, and then I think another piece here um, is around this concept that you shouldn't just be treating like medical and pharma and behavioral health and all these research. Like these are all separate processes today, and we we are really, you know, designed and structured towards. Um, being more holistic. And so, you know, wouldn't it be great if you had a care path where you're, you know, you knew what you were being approved for your pharmacy regimen, as well as, you know, here's the next steps, um, you know, uh, leading up to the surgery that you're having. And all of that is kind of in a, in a package that, um, that, you know, can be um, easily understood, right? So like we're, th those are like the types of things that we're, we're trying to do. Um, and I think the last piece here is like the the decisioning. You know, we are trying to look at so you know, as I said, policy can be very broad, and sometimes, you know, that evidence itself. Um, you know, you may need to have there may be appropriate variation away from that policy, right? Like maybe that policy works for eighty percent of people. That twenty percent of people, there is a legitimate reason that that you are differing from the path that most people are on. So we're trying to use data to understand that. What are the cohorts of patients where we're seeing different patterns um, of how they're they're moving through, and what are ways that you know we can therefore get a better decision, a faster decision, um, you know, about that particular patient's path. So we're really trying to you know improve those things, and and you know grounding this all is again that that handshake with the patient, the provider, um, and the patient that you know we want this experience to be much better. And so we're coming at it with like a design you know, a design uh, uh, perspective. And, you know, we hope that that's going, that's going to really make a difference in terms of the burden that everyone has here. Because you're, you're coming in to get an MRI, it means there's something serious going on. Like the last thing you want to have to worry about is, you know, the billing side of things and the, you know, making that, that so complex that it adds on to that emotional frustration. Right. You know, I was just reading that providers are now actually talking to patients about their meds, which is something that wasn't happening previously. And mm. I'm wondering if this is now because of this whole shift towards value-based care and platforms such as uh, your Cohere Health. Also, uh, just so, so I, I, I have a, a better understanding. So who is the, who's the end user? I know it benefits the patient. Well, who is the end user? Is it the um, is it the, the billing department, or is it the um, provider, or is it sort of a you know a back and forth? It's a so our our platform 
it spans the um, provider, in this case provider, I would say there's the doctors and the clinicians, and then you have the billing staff, you know, the, and then um, and then on the health plan, you have um, the people who are actually intaking that, doing the review, and then also like, you know, kind of managing that process and managing the population health um, of that, or, you know, of that, um, that, that group. So, so currently we have something for the back office, right? And some of that's EMR, but we're looking at ways that we can actually get in front of the clinician as well with relevant data for their, their population. And then we, on the health plan side, we have like the full workflow. So somebody is able to, to actually intake and, you know, um, have a lot of kind of um, technology driven efficiencies in that workflow so that it's a, it's a clearer review and much easier for them. And then we provide the analytics over to everybody, right? Like providers can see analytics, um, health plans can, can see analytics about what's happening. And we think that transparency is really, really important. So this is also, this is the sort of a shared environment with the insurance, the provider and the, the billing. It, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and over time, it'd be great to get something to the patient too, right? Like, I'd love to be able to get a care path to the patient to say, here's what this, you know, here's what path you're going on. Patients like you have gone on these paths. This is what it might cost you, right? Like, all of that would be really, really great to do someday. And also to get to get feedback from the patient as far as say, okay, so you had this treatment. How are you feeling? How are you yes. feeling? And, and measuring that. Um, that benefit, you know, so you can quantify um, yes. where the patient is in terms of how they're experiencing their care through this model. Absolutely. Patient reported outcome measurements are, I think, incredibly powerful where, you know, to actually get to, hey, did you, were you able to return to your activities of daily living? Like, can you actually get out of bed and go to the bathroom by yourself? Right. I mean, like that, that's really what patients care about. Right. And, and so if you can actually collect that um, and then, you know, feed that back into the, the data that, that, that is here. I think that could be really powerful. So where is your product currently available and how, how has it made a difference for patients? Yeah, I think for, um, for patients, the main thing that we see is like fa faster access to care. So that, you know, gets back to this problem of delays in care. So if you can, we have something like a um, 85, 86% instant determination um, where we can get back, you know, hey, this is approved, um, you know, uh, back to the to, to the provider so that they can schedule that patient right away. And so um, there's, you know, in the surveys that we've done, 70% faster access to care um, for these patients. So they're scheduled um, much sooner. Um, and then the providers themselves are also, also, this is an easier process for them, right? So um, our electronic uh, adoption rates through EMR and portal is um, at 96%. So they're not faxing as much and they're not, you know, sending as, as much um, you're calling over the phone. Um, we deny less. Uh, we have a few like 63% um, reduction in the rate of denials. Um, you know, we shrink down the processing time by 40%. We have 92% provider satisfaction. So like also for the providers, we're trying to make this a really good experience. But then I think the most important thing for the patients is the, the care quality and outcomes. And so one of the things we've looked at is complication rates for those patients, right? Readmissions and things like that, um, you know, as after a procedure. And so that is 15% lower because I think we're making better decisions and we're getting those patients in, in sooner. And of course, this then leads to 
savings for the for the health plan as well um, beyond incumbent programs because you know if you can <laughs> prevent people from having complications and all of that like that that's um, and you can get them to the right services the first time right get them on the right path that that's a better way um, to to have you know uh, unnecessary care. Wow, that's incredible. It's, you know, honestly, I, I feel so privileged to be part of this journey, like with this team, because I mean, this is not like my idea, you know, like my idea, like this is partnership with the health plan partnerships with providers. And, and I think it just shows that like, if you can figure out a different way to do it, you can really have, um, have, have that impact. And, you know, we're, this is just the start. Like, we're really excited about where this can go. And where do you see it going in the future? Um, I think for us, so we are across, um, you know, we've started with musculoskeletal, right? So like back pain and joint surgeries and things like that. But um, we have now expanded to cardiology. You know, we're hoping that, you know, this is an approach that can kind of work across, um, you know, across, uh, you know, multiple disease uh, uh, states. Um, and then we are like available. Um, I didn't ask, answer your question from earlier, but we are available nationally, right? So we um, we actually have a, a key um, partnership, uh, with our client Humana. And oh, wow. we, started, we started with them with 12 states two years ago. And then this year we expanded to 50 states. And so, um, really excited about kind of, you know, um, what we can do, but we're in, you know, provider offices all over the place. And, uh, you know, and also we, we have Geisinger health health plan, which is like a really important, you know, health plan because it's, a um, one of the most innovative health systems, Geisinger, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, you know, is is with this health plan and they do a lot that's that's extremely innovative. So we're also really excited there about like, what can we do with these kind of provider sponsored health plans? Because um, we think they, they have a particular interest in, um, you know, improving things for providers because that's like their other half, right? And so, and, and obviously they have a large rural population, underserved population. And so that's also really, um, you know, an area that, that we are, we, we really want to make an impact. I'm wondering, uh, just to circle back to something I'd asked you earlier um, about who makes the decisions. Um, do you think well, first of all, do you do you know if it's clinicians making these decisions? Like, do they have clinicians that are making these decisions um, on the insurance side in terms of doing these authorizations? Because I feel very strongly, personally, about taking power away from clinicians mm-hmm. to make clinical decisions. I don't think, and this is just my opinion, this doesn't represent your opinion, just want to state that. Um, I feel very strongly that that physicians are often put in a position where their clinical expertise is being questioned by Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. non-clinical person on the insurance side. So are these decisions being made by clinicians? Because I know you said that no one set out to create this sort of siloed um, thing that exists now. But it does exist. It does exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, the decisions are, so it's a determination, determination, medical necessity that is being made by clinicians. So it's nurses and then it's a doctor. And if it, if um, a procedure is going to be denied, it has to be a doctor, but I'll tell you, not all doctors are the same. And so one of the frustrations that you hear from, especially specialists in this field are that, you know, 
I'm an orthopedic surgeon who has gone through med school, in fellowship, second fellowship, right? Did all the subspecialized training. Yeah. And the person reviewing on this side is an OBGYN. Like, oh, yeah. cannot compute, right? And so, so you do have that issue. And so like, that's actually something we have subspecialists. Like if we have a spine surgeon, we have, and something is gonna, you know, go to um, a process called peer-to-peer -peer where, you know, you are trying to talk that out with the, with the clinician. Um, with the doctor, we have a subspecialist who is trained, board certified, you know, to talk to that because that's a huge area of frustration, right? Um, this sub subspecialized um, provider has uh, this doc has like kept up with the literature, and you just you just don't have that level of expertise on the other side. So that's actually I think a big issue with some of the the current um, current uh, you know current processes. Um, and what you said about not taking power from the the doctor. I, I think that's such a really powerful point. And I don't think anyone is trying to take power away from, from the doctor because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, that doctor is doing their best is, you know, knows that patient context and all of that. But I think we also have to look at it from the health plan side, right? Because we have this fee for service structure, which again, like, I don't think doctors would agree with either, right? <laughs> that they're paid for every procedure they do. And um, and you might have some bad apples in there, or you might have care that might be not, um, you know, not conforming to the evidence. And so if you're the health plan, you're also trying to ensure that all the resources, you know, and the, uh, are available for people who really need it too. Like I think about something like home health, right? If somebody doesn't need home health, that means that somebody else is, but, you know, but they're getting those services. Someone else over here who actually needs the home health is not getting that, right? Like we actually need to make sure that the resources that we have are equitably divided and, you know, um, to, to like, you know, because patients actually, you know, have those needs and the issue, like another really, you know, challenging thing here, and I don't have a solution for this, but if you're a doctor and you see your individual case, it is a different view than when you are looking across that population. And that is a primary, another one of these fundamental tensions in healthcare, which is really difficult. So I don't, to me, prior auth is, it's not trying to take power away from the doctor, but that's the way it comes across right now because it's such a burdensome system. But I think in its best state, it should be a collaboration, right? It should be that, you know, the health plan is saying, hey, like here, here are our recommendations, here's best practice, right? Like here are ways that maybe you didn't know this, right? Or like maybe you're, um, you know, maybe there is a different um, decision because this is, uh, you know, this is this patient cohort. Um, I think those types of discussions, like that is that is something that should be, you know, kind of a more collaborative process, not this throw stuff over the fence and then get back a yes or a no. Like that's the thing that is so disrespectful, right? And it makes people frustrated and angry about this process. But I think there's there's a better way. Yeah, sounds like AI might be useful and practical uh, in this specific uh, environment, just to to separate the wheat from the chaff. Because you're right, there is there is potential, right? Potential for fraud or overbilling or overtreating. Yeah. And, and even, you know, I don't even go so far as to say it's malicious, but it's just like, if you're drifting a little or you weren't aware, right? Like, and, and I think that, you know, another thing about medical culture here is it's very hard to, like, we have a culture where doctors come up and they cannot look like they don't know what they're doing, right? Like we put them in this very difficult position of, Right. And they know it's life or death. I, I feel I have so much empathy for doctors who are in this position where they have gone 
they have this expertise and if they make the wrong call it can have these you know these um, repercussions for the patient and really impact their health and they feel that responsibility really keenly so if you're coming in over the top and they don't feel respected that that is really really hard that's not the right place to start that conversation right and so I, th I think that's kind of where like having some empathy for, you know, for, for these poor doctors and these poor nurses who are like doing their best and then trying to actually design a process that could work for them. Right. Because at the end, you do need some sort of check too, right. Because um, this is all our money, all our money goes into premiums, all our money goes to, you know, doc to the government to pay out for, for Medicare, Medicaid, like it is health. We have to pay for it as a society that is important, you know, for us to do. But then you have to make sure the resources are being used wisely, right? Right. You know, um, Doctor, I was talking to uh, Dr. Anders recently, and he talked about the data tsunami. Mm -hmm. Also, um, a frustration of clinicians where they just have to sort through so much that sometimes it takes a while to get through to the actual, to drill down to get to what they really need to make uh, clinical decisions. Yeah. Um, so that's something that your platform helps them with as well, right? Hopefully, yeah. I think I think it's that, like you said, it's the tsunami, and and you know, doctors, especially primary care, they have what ten minutes to see a patient, and then they have to be doing all this like record, you know, record entry, and so in some ways, like I don't know if electronic health records have helped practice of medicine. I think a lot of doctors would agree with that. Um, but then on top of that, there are data that they need to understand and want to know. And, you know, what we've done research with doctors, they say, if you could just tell me, you know, um, kind of relative costs, that would help me understand if my patient would actually adhere to this. Like, can they even afford this medication, right? Like they don't know these things at the point of care. Um, and then on top of that, you know, um, like the evidence, all of this stuff is published in PDFs. The doctor is not going to go through and say, oh, is this thing going to be approved, right? Like they're not going to know that per, um, you know, per per plan. And so to me, the, the, um, the approach we're taking is how can we target that information? So it has to be, first of all, very relevant, like you, and you have to present it at the right moment and you have to do it in a way that that person is receptive to it, right? And so we try to use our design principles to, to figure that out, right? So if we are giving a nudge, we make it in the product. It's we try to do it very respectfully. We're not saying this will be denied, and you know, say no, right? Like we are careful about the language. Like, did you know, right? Did you were you aware? Like those types of things that that can hopefully you know like lower the you know lower the annoyance of it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, to make it very targeted and make it actionable, right? Though. I think bringing some design principles to this data tsunami would make it interpretable and actually useful for um, for clinicians. And again, like having to dig through all of that, like I, you know, almost the explosion of healthcare data has created its own set of challenges. You know, and you need to then have it's just like you know with um, you know uh, with uh, you know with consumer products. Like Amazon has to have a way to sort through you know, what are good products, what are, and so they have filters and they have reviews and things like that. Like you have to have these mechanisms to actually be able to like, let people find the information they need. You need better search. You need better ways to, to handle that data. And so, again, I think it's coming from like a data first perspective. We're hopeful that, you know, our approaches can actually, you know, not be seen as a hindrance and not be like, 
yet another report that I'm not going to read, but like actually something that's meaningful and valuable in in you know um, in helping that 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 clinician make a better decision. Well, the flip side of that is you have uh, clinicians who just throw in the towel and say, "The insurance is not going to pay for this, so I'm not even going to bother recommending it to my patient." Like my yeah. primary care doctor was saying to me that oftentimes that's what it comes down to. It's like if they don't think the insurance is going to pay, they're not even going to bother with it. Which, is, which puts the patient at a huge disadvantage yeah. because the conversation doesn't even happen. But now I see the larger picture of why they make that, that decision. Um, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a, a great uh, topic, a great conversation. I feel like you really um, laid out a lot of the, the frustration and offered a great solution. I think this is, you know, this is the future. You know? Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, just again, really appreciate um, you taking uh, the time to have, have me on. And it was a real pleasure to, 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 to speak with you. Thanks. Have a great one. All right. Have a great one. Bye. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.